First question, because this is one that I've been asked several times uh, since the message uh, a couple weeks ago on Sunday night. Uh, had some emails on it, and then someone wrote the question. It says this, in your past sermon in Revelation 12, you talked about Satan's presence in heaven. Would you elaborate on Isaiah 14, 12, and there may be another Old Testament passage that talks about Satan being thrown out of heaven in the past before creation. So let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 14, because that is an appropriate passage to point to on this topic. The uh, passage in Revelation 12 that we looked at a couple weeks ago did create a number of questions in people's minds, and uh, it's neat to see people trying to work through that from a biblical point of view. This is one of the passages to look at. Isaiah 14, there are actually two main passages in Hebrew Scripture about Satan's fall. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel chapter 28 are those two passages. In both cases, uh, the prophet or God, whichever the case may be, is addressing a human ruler, but appears to go behind the human ruler to the one who is behind him or was behind him, namely Satan. This is not unlike the occurrence when Uh, Jesus was asking his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? You remember that story in Matthew 16? And well, some say you're John the Baptist, one of the prophets, etc. Who do you say that I am? Peter, talking to spokesman for the group, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed, Blessed are you, Simon Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, my Father, who is in heaven. And then Jesus went on to talk about his crucifixion. And Peter said, Lord, he began to rebuke the Lord, and that will never happen. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Well, to whom was he speaking? Well, he was speaking to Peter. But he knew what was behind Peter's comment, even if Peter didn't understand what was behind it. And so Jesus addressed Satan on that occasion. You have a similar type of scenario in both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14, how you are fallen From heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, now notice this series, five of them in a row, I will statements uh, showing us what was at the heart of Satan's fall, his pride. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Five times Satan says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And this, uh, this is a description many Bible scholars believe, and I would concur, of, of Satan's fall. Uh, by the way, this should be uh, very insightful to us that Satan's sin, Satan's fall involved, now watch this, him wanting to be like God not wanting to be unlike God. And that still continues to this day. That is why Satan loves to traffic and work in the area of religion. He wants to be like God. So often when we think of the work of Satan, I'm not implying he's not involved in these things, but so often when we think of the work of Satan, we think of trying to get people to be drug addicts and alcoholics and prostitution and all of those things. Certainly Satan is involved in those things, uh, but, as I've said many times in the past, Satan would just as soon send, one to, send someone to hell from the church pew as he would the gutter. It doesn't matter to him. He, he loves to work in the area of religion. 
The New Testament tells us he has his own ministers, 2 Corinthians 11. He has his own doctrine, 1 Timothy 4. He has his own churches, Revelation 2 and 3. So he has the whole package. Doctrine, ministers, churches. He loves to traffic in the area of religion. And this is an insight into that, that he was saying, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to rival God. And that was the origin of his fall. Turn over to Ezekiel 28 and look at the other passage. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, chapter 28, verse 16. By the abundance, uh, verse 14 says, You are the anointed cherub who covers, I establish you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You are perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. Similar wording as what we read in Isaiah 14. One other verse, look at Jesus' statement over in Luke chapter 10, over into the New Testament. Luke chapter 10. And Jesus said on one occasion something about this very event. Luke 10, verse 18, or verse 17, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So it seems that the question in a number of people's minds, after we went through that text in in Revelation, is, well, I thought Satan fell from heaven, or fell and was cast out of heaven. But when we see him in Revelation Chapter 12, it says that he is cast to the earth and he no longer has access to heaven. So how do we piece all this together? And I think the simplest answer is that Satan was, as we read in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, he was in a unique place as the anointing cherub who covers. He was in uh, in the very dwelling place of God. But when he sinned, he was cast from heaven, but not permanently banished from heaven. So therefore, he has access into heaven And in fact, we read in, for example, Job 1, that there was a day when the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, that is the spirit beings, were gathered and Satan was there among them. So Satan clearly has access to heaven. We know that from Job 1. We know that from Revelation 12. So he did fall from heaven. He did fall into sin, was cast out, but it wasn't a permanent permanent banishment. And so now he has access into heaven. But the story in Revelation 12 is a future story. It will take place in the tribulation period. And then he will be banished from heaven permanently. And the one who is described there as as accusing us before the throne night and day will no longer have access into heaven. So uh, you're right in questioning that, wondering, well, I thought, you know, Isaiah 14 says he, he did fall. Well, he did. And Jesus even said, I saw that. But it doesn't mean it was a permanent banishment. And we know that from other places in both Hebrew Scripture and the New Testament. All right, next question. Uh, Let's uh, go back to Ezekiel. We were just there. Uh, This question is not on Ezekiel, but Ezekiel has a statement, or the Lord does through Ezekiel, to help, help answer this question. Ezekiel 18, and then I'll read the question, and we'll use this passage. And the question is this, uh, is there such thing as a family curse? If so, can Christians be affected by it? Can Christians be cursed? Uh, This view, by the way, is based 
on an improper understanding of a comment that God made in the Ten Commandments about visiting the iniquities of the fathers down to the third, fourth generation, etc. And from that passage, there has arisen a very common teaching. In fact, I know one very popular Bible teacher who says you should not adopt children because you don't know if those children are cursed. Uh, he is saying he is saying he believes that biblically there's this idea of a curse that goes down through family lines. Therefore, you should not adopt children. You might be adopting a child who is cursed. Of course, we would reject such a notion. But this is a, if I mentioned his name, many of you would know this gentleman, very very popular Bible teacher. That is a common view among Christians that there is some kind of curse that will be on in a family, etc., and that you're sort of. Uh, you know, if you happen to be in that, you're, you're helpless. You, you, there's nothing you can do about it. You just got the curse. And uh, so you, you, have, you, know, you have no say-so in it and, and no recourse. Well, in Ezekiel's day, the children of Israel were following a similar thought pattern, a similar line. And uh, in chapter 18, God addresses this line of thinking. Uh, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. This was a saying they'd adopted that basically meant this. Our parents sinned. It was their problem, their fault, not ours, but we get the curse. Or more specifically, we get punished for it. That's what they were saying. In other words, the, prophet, uh, the prophets you know warned about captivity. And so some of the people said, see, it was our father's fault." Oh, we don't have any say, we don't have, there's no recourse, there's nothing we can do about it. Verse 3, as I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son is mine, the soul whose sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, and then we have a long list of these things, skip down to verse 9, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just he shall surely live, says the Lord God. By the way, this isn't the only place in Hebrew Scripture where God addresses this false idea that you're helpless. If your parents did something, you just, you know, you, you're helpless and you will get the curse or you will get the punishment, etc. Uh, so, uh, to answer your question, no, there is no such thing as a family curse. However, however, listen to this carefully so you understand the distinction. There clearly are, and we only, need to, uh, tr- we only need to acknowledge this by way of observation, not even trying to defend it necessarily biblically. However, there are tendencies that are very easily passed in families. Uh, and these tendencies may, not saying definitively, but may even be genetic. For example, uh, it is possible that if in your family line you have uh, those above you in your line, your parents or your grandparents, etc., who are alcoholics, uh, you may have a strong predisposition toward that. You may have a tendency toward that. There are a lot of things we don't know still about human nature. I mean, we do know what the Bible tells us, that we're sinners by, by birth, by choice, by nature, by practice. The Bible tells us that. And there's often this debate that comes up, well, you know, and this usually comes up in the area of homosexuality. Well, I can't help it. You know, I'm born gay. And uh, there are all these discussions. Well, what if someday science finds a certain gene that predisposes people toward uh, homosexuality or toward drunkenness or whatever? And my response to that is, so what? 
All that will do is confirm greater what, what we know God already says, and that is we're sinners by birth, by nature. It's, it is inherent within us. Is it genetic? I don't know if it's genetic or not. But if it's ever discovered to be genetic, that doesn't really change a thing. It doesn't change anything about our responsibility for our sinful choices. All it means is that our predisposition towards something may be stronger than we even realize. So it's interesting to note, for example, in the book of Genesis, and I'm not, not, not at all saying this was genetic, uh, but it is interesting on this idea of family lines and family tendencies. If you read the story of Genesis, you'll remember that Abraham, on two occasions, lied about his wife, saying, she's my sister. Lo and behold, Isaac comes along. He does the same thing, as remarkable as that, that is, that in the same family you would have three occasions where a man would lie about his wife, saying, she's my sister. Now, did, did Isaac hear or know about his dad doing that? Is that how they came about? We don't know. Is it just that this was a tendency uh, in their family? We don't know, but my point is this. Your question is, is there a curse on families? In, in other words, it almost implied, are, are we helpless? No. No, as God says here in, in, through the prophet Ezekiel, that's not a valid excuse to say, well, my parents did this, I'm helpless, so I'm just going to suffer the consequence. No, 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 that's not valid. However, it is wise for us to beware of tendencies in our families of those, you know, aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents, etc., because in all likelihood, some of their weaknesses will have a similar tendency. So there may be, it just may just be from family environment, it could be deeper in, in, you know, in genetics. It doesn't really matter. But it's just a, a wise person will realize, you know, this tends to run in my family. And so I would be wise to really uh, be alert to that possible tendency in my own life. All right, next question says this. Uh, what, very short answer really, what does the Bible teach concerning cremation? The answer is nothing. It really doesn't say anything about it. It's an extremely common question. Um, if I had a nickel for every time someone asked me that question, I'd be fairly wealthy, I think, at this point. Uh, because people wonder about that, and especially they wonder about it because of these statements in Hebrew Scripture where God condemns vehemently the practice of causing your children or your family to pass through the fire. And people read that and they get nervous. Oh, that's God condemning cremation. Well, I don't want to do anything God condemns. Right. So I shouldn't do that. But what God was condemning in those passages was the practice that was heinous in his sight. And that was the practice of offering their children as living sacrifices to the gods and actually burning them as a sacrifice to the gods. This took place just uh, south of Jerusalem throughout its history in the Hinnom Valley. And uh, that's why during Jesus' day, the Hinnom Valley uh, became synonymous with, uh, it was the garbage dump. Uh, it was used to throw trash down there. Uh, the fires never went out. Of course, worms would collect around the garbage. And that was the picture Jesus used in Mark's gospel of hell, where he says the, 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 worm, the, the fire does not quench, the worm does not die. And uh, in fact, it's an interesting wording uh, relationship there. In, in Hebrew, the word for valley is guy. And so the, the Hinnom Valley, which circles around the southern part of Jerusalem on the west and, and, and south, is in Hebrew, that's Gai Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom, the Hinnom Valley, we say in English. Gai Hinnom. Well, Gai Hinnom in Hebrew comes into Greek as Gehenna, and Gehenna is the Greek word for hell. And that is uh, where that picture comes from 
And one of the reasons why the people of Israel sort of abandoned using the Hinnom Valley and made it the garbage dump is because in its history, that's where this practice of offering children took place, offering them in fires to the false gods, which God uh, vehemently for, uh, gave the, the people of Israel uh, forbidden commandments against that. So uh, because of that, sometimes people read cremation into that. They wonder if that's what God is saying. But really, there's, there's nothing in the Bible uh, about cremation that, that addresses that issue. All right, next question says this. Um, Pastor Brian, what's your opinion of the new 2011 revised NIV? I understand it is attempting to be gender neutral. Should that concern us? Overall, is it an accurate rendition of the original text? This is a great question, and it's a little bit of a complicated question, so I hope I I don't just muddy the water. Uh, I will just say this in general, and then I will explain some reasons. Um, I'm I'm not super positive about the 2011 uh, revised NIV because of their attempt to be gender neutral, not because, now hear this, not because... I am against gender-neutral translations where they ought to be gender-neutral. For example, let me just illustrate this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, literally, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Well, you know, because you know your Bible well enough to know, that that's not saying, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, but not a woman. I mean, that's just, it's using that, and, and you, could rightly, you could rightly render that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. It's not talking male or female. If anyone is in Christ, if it's a man, he's a new man. If it's a woman, she's a new woman. Uh, that, that would, in my opinion, would be uh, an appropriate way, if you're wanting to not confuse people on the gender issue, that would be an appropriate place to use a gender-neutral translation. However, the problem I have with the gender-neutral translations, those that are coming out, is that they don't stop at those kinds of passages. They don't stop at the passages which could be gender-neutral, and you're not changing anything. In fact, you might be clearing up confusion. They often will try to be gender-neutral where I'm convinced that the meaning of the passage is not gender-neutral. In other words, it's talking about maleness and femaleness. And in God's economy, God's mind, God's program, there is a distinction. Men are to be men. Women are to be women. There are specific uh, uh, passages about 1 Timothy 2. I suffer not or I allow not a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That is not a gender neutral passage. That is specifically talking about maleness, femaleness. And then that those, those are passages on the human level. Even more serious uh, and more significant are those passages where they, some, I'm not accusing the NIV, the 2011, I haven't checked it out on this in particular, but I know a lot of the push for gender neutral does this, and that is uh, they want to be gender neutral in relation to God. And they say, well, God is spirit, and so therefore it's not necessary or appropriate to call him he, uh, just call him God, try to somehow render it if the original says, God, he, such and such, somehow try to render it so that it's gender neutral. And that's even, in my, my mind, even more serious and significant. Uh, so I am not, I mean, I've done enough 
uh, translation from Hebrew and Greek just on my own in, in my studies to the years, seminary and doctoral work and all that. And I've taught in enough various settings to understand a lot of the intricacies of translation. I mean, I've, I've taught where I had to be translated into Albanian and into Russian and into Swahili and into uh, Italian. And I, I've lost track of how many different places I've taught in. And I've talked with a lot of translators. So I understand that there are times you can't translate something exactly word for word. You're going to have to choose a different word. You're going to maybe have to use more than one word. And if you, if, even if you've ever just taken a foreign language like French or German, you understand that. So I'm not as narrow probably as some are on these translation issues. I recognize nuances and, and you want to be effective in communication. So uh, I might be more inclined to allow a gender neutral translation at points where someone else would feel uncomfortable. But I am certainly not comfortable with the push on gender neutral translations where they are uh, going against passages which I believe and convinced have a gender issue in them. And then especially when it comes to the person of God, trying to somehow make it gender neutral. So uh, that, that I would not be comfortable with at all. So in answer to your question, um, I understand that, for example, like the, uh, the, I forget the exact name of the group, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, the, the group which is really doing a good job on the, those issues, they are even uh, not positive, maybe I'll say, uh, about this 2011 revised NIV and knowing how they are trying to be biblical and be biblically balanced, and their hesitancy would cause great hesitancy on my part as well. Okay, next question says this. Uh, uh, many times I've heard you challenge young people to stop listening to ungodly music if they want to continue walking with God against the flow. What would you recommend in a work situation when coworkers listen to the radio all day long? Very practical question. A number of us have faced that through the years. I uh, going through school, worked in a lot of places where that was the case. And uh, I would say this, two passages I would give you. One would be Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. So if you're exposed to that all the time, then especially, I mean, that's true, that verse is true for us anyway, but especially if you're in that environment, guard your heart. Uh, because the problem, you're right, you've heard me challenge young people about listening to ungodly music but it's not merely the listening. In other words, you're not contaminated just by hearing a song, right? I mean, face it, you hear songs, I hear songs sitting in the dentist chair sometimes that I don't necessarily want to hear. So it's not like I get up and go home and take a shower, like, oh no, I heard that song and somehow, because it's not merely the issue of listening to the song, it's what you are embracing in your heart. So when I encourage young people not to listen to ungodly music, it's not that, well, if you happen to hear it, it's somehow going to infect you or contaminate you. But it's a heart issue if you're listening because that's what you like and that's what you want to listen to. Then you are infecting your heart. So I would just say guard your heart. And another verse I think that's key along these lines is John 15, 3, where Jesus said, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So I would say this, that if the, the, more, the more you are in situations that you have no control over, say, like work or whatever, the more you are in situations where you are inundated with ungodliness, then the more it is imperative that you fill your mind with scriptural truth. Now, again, we should always, that should be a, a priority in our lives for all of us, to fill our hearts and minds uh, with, with truth. Pastor Jeremy quoted, you know, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. So that's true for all of us. But it's 
even more true if the environment that you're in, which you have no control over, is one where you uh, are continually exposed to that. And I know what that's like. I mean, I remember playing football, you know, in high school, in the locker room, the, the garbage you hear. Sometimes you just can't get away from it. It's just, it's just you're inundated with it. You hear it all the time. So if you're in those settings where you, you have that kind of exposure and you really can't change that, then it behooves you even more so to fill your mind with truth. Fill your mind with Scripture because, as Jesus said, you're clean through the Word that I've spoken to you. The Word has a washing effect in our minds and in our hearts. And so um, I would just say that would, if you're in that work situation as you're describing here, and fill your mind with Scripture, fill your mind with truth to wash out the junk that you're exposed to, not by your own doing. Okay, next question uh, says this. Um, Pastor Brian, what verse or verses of Hebrew Scripture, and that's Old Testament, that's the phrase I use for Old Testament, have meant the most to you over the years? And so when I got this question this afternoon, I just jotted down uh, about a half a dozen, and we won't turn to all of them, uh, but Genesis fifty twenty is one of the tops on my list. It's where Joseph says to his brothers, after all of the story, you're familiar with the story, they sold him into slavery, and uh, after a number of years, he's exalted to the to the right-hand man, and so forth. And then after this reunion, they're worried if he's going to get back at them, and he says this, but as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's a tremendous statement. That's, that's the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. Uh, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. That, that is one of my favorite. Uh, Jeremiah 15.16, the prophet says, your words were found and I did eat them, and they became to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, Lord God of hosts. I love that verse, the imagery. I found your word, and I ate it. I mean, I just consumed it. Your words were found, and I ate them. Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two. another one of my favorite. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will not suffer the righteous to be moved. Uh, Psalm 63.1, uh, we sang this morning out of Psalm 42. Psalm 63 says almost the same thing. Uh, Psalm 63 talks about uh, desiring God as a deer pants for water. And this, this, my soul thirsts after the living God. That's, that's one of my favorite. Two others, we'll look at these two. Look at Joshua 1. I know this is a favorite probably for many of you. But Joshua 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua chapter 1. Of course, this was, was directed toward jo- Joshua, but there's clearly an application here um, because we have this, these same truths reiterated over in, in the New Testament. Uh, Joshua 1, 8 talks about this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. So in other words, Scripture, you, you shall meditate on in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. And here's the verse, verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That is a tremendous promise. Written to Joshua, you say, well, can we apply that? Absolutely, because we have in Matthew 28, Jesus saying, 
Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then the writer of Hebrews picks up on that in Hebrews 13, says, Let your manner of life be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear what men will do to me. That's clearly a paraphrase of Joshua 1.9. So it's reiterated in the New Testament, New Covenant, as a promise we can apply, we can claim. Uh, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then one other one, back up just a few pages to Deuteronomy 32. This is one that I've loved through the years. This is, um, this is as Moses was uh, commanding the children of Israel before they entered the promised land. You know the story. They forfeited it for almost 40 years because of unbelief. And so after all the unbelieving generation died off, they were about to go into the land finally. And so Moses gathered them together, as it were, for one final charge. And uh, that's why it's called Deuteronomy. Deuteros to Namas law, second time through the law. Uh, he, he already given them the law in Exodus and they didn't keep God's word. And so now he has to give it to them again before they go in. And then as it's winding down this sermon, this is basically a long sermon by Moses, as it's winding down, I love this statement, uh, verse 46. And he said to them, set your, Deuteronomy 32, verse 46, Set your hearts and all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. Now, of course, we're not under the law. That's abundantly clear from the New Testament. So a parallel application for us would be set your heart on Scripture Set your heart on God's word. And then this statement, verse 47. For it is not a... And, and the, the English translations render this differently because of this Hebrew word. For this, it is not a futile thing for you or vain thing, some translations say. Uh, trifle thing. In other words, this is, not a, this is not a little deal. You know, we often say, this is a big deal. Well, this is just the, the same way of saying it in the negative. This is not a little deal, okay? This isn't insignificant in life. Set your hearts on the Word of God, for it's not a futile thing. It's not a vain thing. It's not a trivial thing. It's not a little deal here, because it is your life. I love that word. This is your life. This is, this is, this is what your life is about. This, you want fullness of life? Set your hearts on the Word of God. So this is one of my favorites. So those would be some of my favorites. Genesis 50, 20, Jeremiah 15, 16, Psalm 55, 22, Joshua 1, 9, Deuteronomy 32, 46, and 47, Psalm 63, 1 were the first ones that come to mind that have been my, some of my favorites down through the years out of Hebrew Scripture. All right, next question uh, is not on this passage, but it's in Luke's gospel. The answer, I think, turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And this is one of our uh, youngsters who asked this question. It's one of the reasons I love the, the Q&A, because a lot of times uh, youngsters will write out a question, something that's been perplexing to them, something plaguing them or whatever. And so uh, a young man handed me this question this morning. How old was Jesus when he went to heaven? And I think the way we can answer that question is you, you need to piece a couple things together because you don't have a verse that says, you know, 
six months after Jesus' 40th birthday or anything like that. You don't have something that specific, that definitive. However, as Luke gives in chapter 3 this genealogy, he's tracing the genealogy of Jesus, uh, and, and he traces it from Jesus all the way back, last verse in chapter 3, to Adam. Traces it that way. But notice his statement in chapter 3, verse 23. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. In other words, it's worded that way because he wasn't Joseph's son. He was Joseph's legal son, but not natural son. He was virgin born, born of the Virgin Mary. So they supposed he was Joseph's son. But he began at about 30 years of age, which interestingly was the age, that the customary age, for entering into the office of a prophet. Uh, some even suggest that that's when the priests would uh, enter into their office. So this would, be, uh, this would be a fairly typical age. Now, that tells us when he started his ministry. So now if we want to do a little bit of math or calculation, uh, how old was he when he was crucified? Well, to answer that question, the, the, the only way we can possibly answer that question is from John's Gospel. Now, we're not going to turn over there because there's not a single passage. But if you study John's Gospel closely, we know he began at about 30 years of age. And John, as he chronicles the ministry of Jesus, and by the way, he gives the, the longest uh, duration of Jesus' ministry. If it weren't for John's Gospel, the longest that we could probably come up with would be Matthew's account, and that's about 22 months. So if we only had the synoptic Gospels, maybe we could stretch it to two years. But John's Gospel gives us more information to fill in the picture. And John mentions three distinct Passovers that Jesus attended in his ministry. Three. So if he began at about 30 years of age, and then he attended three different Passovers in Jerusalem... And he was killed, of course, at Passover. Again, how do you want to calculate? Did he have three that he attended, then the fourth one he was killed at, or two, then the three? Either way, most, uh, most Bible scholars would place Jesus at about, and notice Luke's statement of about, about 33 and a half years old when he went to heaven. So if his ministry lasted approximately three to three and a half years, which is, I think there's pretty good evidence for that, then he was about 33 33 and a half years old when he was crucified. Of course, he went to the Father, but he came back, was raised, and then spent 40 days on the earth, then ascended to the right hand of the throne of the Father. Approximately, you could say, use the round number of 33 years old. Okay, final question tonight. Uh, it says, uh, when asked why they pray to saints, uh, Catholics will tell me that they do it to ask Mary or whoever they are praying to, to pray for them. They compare it to asking a friend to pray for them. What is a good way to explain a true biblical stance on this? Um, several passages. Uh, go back, first of all, to, or over to the right to Acts chapter 1. This is just a little, uh, it's not even the point of this passage, but I think it's interesting, the wording here. Um, because if, if one of the, writers of the New Testament wanted to establish some type of praying to Mary, here would have been a good chance to do it. But I want you to notice Dr. Luke's wording. This is, of course, uh, this is after the ascension, before the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
And we read in verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. When they, entered, and when they had entered, they went in, up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now again, I, I admit this is just a little thing, but notice that it doesn't say they continued in prayer to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Could have said that if that's what he wanted to say. If he wanted to establish a doctrine of praying to Mary, here's a great chance. Jesus is gone. He's ascended. That's verse 9. So who are we going to pray to? Mary, help us out here. Uh, Let's pray to you. There's no praying to Mary. Not only that, you have direct statements. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus. Couldn't be any more specific than that. There's one mediator. And so when it comes to prayer, we are told to whom we pray. Philippians 4, uh, verses 6 and 7. Uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. Let your request be made known unto God. Hebrews 4 talks about Jesus being our high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, talking about going to our high priest, Jesus. So anywhere you look in Scripture, uh, it is abundantly clear, both on the negative side that there are no other mediators, no other people to whom we pray other than the Lord Jesus, God the Father. And when on the positive side, when we are taught about prayer and told to pray, we are specifically told to whom we pray. And so this idea that, that well, it's sort of just like, you know, asking someone to pray for it. Basically what, what they're saying is this. Uh, when you would say, where is the scriptural support? The only answer they can really give is it's in the white spaces. And whenever you start going to white spaces for your theology and for your doctrine, you're in trouble. This is what I often say in conversations with people on the subject of infant baptism. Show me one example in the Bible. Just one. I mean, you've got the book of Acts, which covers a 30-year period of the history of the church. For 30 years, can't we just see one example of a baby being baptized? There's not one well, where is that doctrine? Well, it's in the white spaces. It's just not in there. And so in a similar way, this doctrine of praying to the saints, praying, it's, it's not in Scripture. It's in the white spaces. However, what you need to understand is that's not really a problem in Catholicism. Now, this question said uh, you, you're talking with Catholics. I'm going to change the wording a little bit here. Not your wording, because I understand you're talking to people. But whenever I address Catholic theology, I like to make sure that I'm addressing Catholic theology. Not Catholics. I'm not picking on the people. I'm talking about Catholic theology. And this idea is of not really needing biblical support is not a problem in Catholic theology. Because if you understand Catholic theology, then you know that this is not their sole authority. Because the teaching of the church, i.e. the Pope and the bishops and the cardinals, is on equal authority with the Bible. So it doesn't matter if you can't find it in the Bible, because you can find it in the teaching of the church. They're all about saints and praying to saints and, and, uh, and venerating saints. So I, if, someone know, if someone is in the Catholic Church and knows his theology, and you try to reason with them from Scripture... 
then one thing they can say to you, and then you're stuck at this point because you, you have to agree what's the ultimate authority. One thing they can say to you is, well, it, I don't have to give you biblical support because my church teaches that we can do this. And my church, the teaching of my church, has equal authority with the Bible. So you see, when it comes to the issue of, of Catholic theology and Protestant theology, the sole, the primary, the, the key issue is authority. What is our authority? And we can't even agree on that. So if you can't agree on that, then you really can't have debates because one's going to be quoting Bible, and at some point when you get outside of Bible, one's going to be quoting the church. So in that sense, you're stuck. So in answer to your question, if these friends of yours do recognize the Bible as authority, and some in the Catholic Church do, then you could show them these passages I pointed out and say, There's nothing, show me something in Scripture that would defend your view. They won't be able to do that. Uh, and if they will recognize the Bible as the authority, then that would solve the issue, that would resolve the issue. But whether or not they're willing to recognize that as final authority remains to be seen, dependent on how committed they are to Catholic theology. All right, great questions today. Thanks for turning those in. Let's stand, and uh, we'll close in prayer and be dismissed. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. Opportunity to sing together, opportunity to be ministered unto in song with some great songs. Opportunity to look in your word and, uh, and see what it has to say about these, uh, these issues. Very practical, very relevant to our day and age. And so uh, help us to not only say with our words and affirm that your word is our authority, but may it really be our authority in all of our beliefs, in all of our practices, in all of our positions. Uh, because for all of us, it's very easy for us to fall back on something we want to be true or we wish were true or something we've been taught is true but really has no scriptural support. Uh, may we make sure that in all of life, your word is our authority. You've given us a gracious gift, a marvelous gift in your word. As it says in Second Timothy 3, it's the very breath of God and therefore it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So may we love it, learn it, live it, and share it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.